You're listening to Wood Talk Online, a podcast for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are your hosts, Mark Spagnolo and Matt Vanderlis, and maybe somebody else. Welcome to Wood Talk Online, episode 32 for March 17th, 2008. I'm Mark Spagnolo. And I'm Matt Vanderlist, and we are back once again. I know nobody would ever believe that we'd be able to do back-to-back episodes again. I think there's a lot, a lot of people out there right now are like, I bet you they're just rehashing something right now. That's all they're doing. <laughs> yeah, but pretty I- much. It's just synthesized voices from other episodes. That's right. We're just, yeah, just piecing it together. But you know what? If you have any comments, questions, some feedback from something you've heard today or in a previous episode, you know what? You know how to get a hold of us. That's at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can pick up your phone, landline, cell phone, whatever you have. Call us from work. People do that all the time. Uh, 623-242-2450. And leave us a voicemail with your question, your feedback, what have you. Just we want to hear from you. We we love you, the listeners. And we, we love, love to hear from you. Yeah, we love communicating with all of you. It's It's very nice. Nice That's community. right. No, yeah, no, people keep it down. We got to talk though. So, <laughs> yeah, shut so up. What's going on? Yeah, shut. <laughs> so what's going on, Mark? <laughs> um, well, you know, a lot of things at this point. We've got. Uh, we made a few plans recently. Um, mm-hmm. We have made the decision to take that covered patio section. I may have mentioned this in the past, but we have a little covered patio outside of the shop that's in the backyard, uh, probably a fourteen by fourteen space, roughly that is lacking two walls um it's basically not meant to have walls but if you put two walls there now all of a sudden you have a room so uh, we had decided that maybe it's time to create a finishing room um and and more than anything not so much to have like a full scale booth in it for spraying or anything like that but more more or less a place that can be isolated from the rest of the shop where i might put an air cleaner or something in there and just consider it like a clean room uh, and a way to evacuate fumes and things like that. So, um, you know, we're, we've priced it out, and it looks like we're we're going to go for it. And I may not be able to finish it off. I'm, I'm actually just getting the outside done because I'm not I'm not a stucco guy really. So I want it to match the house. So I'm paying someone to frame it, do the stucco on the outside, and I will take care of all the interior stuff, which means adding a nice um, a nice fan and probably some sort of filtration system on on the outside of the fan. And I, actually, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit, is if you have this opportunity to create a dedicated finishing space like this, what would you include in it to make it ideal for, for finishing? Um, and, so, and I guess I could say some of the things that I'm going to do. Um, but okay. if you were to do this, what, what would be like on your top list you know, of things that you would want in there as far as features, whether it's lighting, the fan, uh, electricity, a good radio, a TV, a refrigerator? You know, uh, Bob Flexner. Yeah, <laughs> you would want Bob that, Flexner in there. I would just deliver the pieces, and he gives them back to me, fully finished <laughs> and looking as amazing as they possibly ever could in any one of his books <laughs> or seminars. You know? <laughs> uh, let's see. <laughs> let's see. Uh, when it comes to what would I really, really want? I, I think you pretty much nailed everything. I, I need something to help keep me from getting distracted, but more importantly, I need something so that I'm not going to pass out from the fumes, which have been known to happen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. Well, that's a good question. If you think. Um, you know, if you think in terms of what type of finishing you're going to do, and primarily, I want to move to water-based finishes, and that's not going to change. I mean, the intensity that the government is putting into a lot of these laws, I mean, California is incredibly restricted now in terms of what they can have, and it just seems like, you know, we're being forced, like it or not, to move into water-based. Mm-hmm. Um, now, fortunately, the water-based formulations are getting a lot better. They're looking a lot more... Uh, 
finish a year ish as opposed to, you know, they're looking a lot more more professional ish rather than mad ish. Yes. Well, I don't know about that, but yeah, I mean, they, they definitely are starting to look better. So it's, it's not a bad thing. And if we can do our part to help the environment, we probably should. Um, Right. You know, but in terms of your equipment that you're going to have in there, what do you need to be concerned with? Well, if you're not doing solvent based, you know, things and you're not, using a lot of uh, oil-based things as far as spraying, you probably can get away with a pretty simple uh, setup in terms of the fan. I know, you know, I've seen even uh, some articles by, you know, Jewett and uh, other folks, um, or even what's his name, Sandalwood's uh, uh, blog that we we talk about all the time. Uh, He's got a great design for a very simple interior um, uh, system for that. So it, it doesn't have to be this complex thing. It doesn't have to be this super expensive fan you know explosion proof fan you can actually get away with using a standard fan and even a box fan on some of these simpler setups but um you know that's that's the question is how you know how big do you go for that type of thing i mean most people say that when you spray water-based by the time the atomized finish gets about two or three feet out of the gun it seems to turn into a powder and then that powder actually winds up falling to the floor. You just vacuum it up later. It's, it's not like a solvent-based lacquer uh, and oil finishes that will get onto your surfaces, solidify, and then you've got yourself you know, a nice, messy problem all over the place. So um, by switching to water-based finish, I think it's really going to simplify things for me quite a bit. Yeah, I, I well in that case, I would definitely need to dedicate a water supply so that I could you know, use that to clean my, my, huh. my tools. That's because- not a bad idea. That's pretty smart. Yeah, and then on top of it also, and you inevitably somehow manage to spray it in your face because you weren't wearing your gear, then you can <laughs> run the water underneath there rather than run around the shop screaming, ah, water in my eye. I mean, water-based. <laughs> Dude, I didn't even think about that. That's such a great idea. Thank you, because now I can include that in my plan. I just, you know, a nice little slop sink would be very nice to have. Um, exactly. Well, how about um, specialized lighting? How about instead of... You know, well, of course you have overhead light, but for me, ideally, if I'm spraying, um, the best type of surface for me to have or best type of lighting is lighting that comes from the side as opposed to the top. And then you can get that raking light effect. And man, could you imagine if you had a perfect raking light through the entire process of finishing, how much more accurate you could be in seeing the flaws as you're going? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of times when I'm when I'm working anywhere, I've got like one of the kids standing there with a flashlight. No, get don't there, so <laughs> I can see across. What the hell's wrong with it? Don't you learn angles in the second grade? Come on. <laughs> I think you need some lights on a stand, Matt. That works a lot better. <laughs> yeah, they don't cry as much either. <laughs> yeah, they don't cry. They don't complain. Their arms don't get tired. So, but, yeah, having some sort of extra lighting system, and they're like light, lights on like those flexible necks or something, you know, so uh-huh, you can sure. really get it in there. And yeah, that would be great. And uh, how about like one of those like like when you're you're spraying? Do you have like one of those benches or the tables where it like spins around so yeah. that you can? You know, yeah, I've been thinking about coming up with sort of a lazy Susan uh, design for a big four by four round sort of table. Um, you know, you could get uh, pipe fittings from you know, just Home Depot or Lowe's and sort of have a pipe within a pipe that spins around. You know, and, and I'm also thinking about. I know Rockler sells them uh, as like jig parts for outfeed rollers and stuff. You can actually get those little balls that you can screw to a surface and they're just like a big metal rolling ball you could sort of use those in conjunction with a system like that to have a nice spinny lazy susan style setup which would be kind of nice i think that would be very convenient yeah absolutely how about like uh like how's your 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 hoses coming down here they're going to come down like from the top or something like if you had it like 
just you know when you're done just hang your gun up on the uh, like a hook above you and just kind of walk away or well i know um i know in the the refinishing shop i used to work in the booth had a bunch of hooks on it that you can hang your guns from for me the gun i probably would want one there so that if i'm in between jobs i i want to be able to to hang the gun up somewhere near where i'm actually spraying but i have a feeling my actual turbine units will sort of be in the back of the shop and stored back or in the back of this room stored back there and then i'm just going to run the hose up to the area where the finish is because i don't want the the turbine itself to pull any of the fumes or anything or the the finish back into uh the gun as it's you know doing its thing so keeping it away from the actual area that you're finishing is is usually a good idea um but yeah, I mean yeah. that that it, that's the kind of thing that you have the luxury of thinking about when you're designing this type of thing. Uh, where do you want these hooks? Where do you want your lights? It's just it's it's kind of a fun thing. So it, it I don't not everybody's going to have the opportunity to do that, but uh, you know, I would I wish I would have had this when when I was actually making furniture for a living because it would have certainly helped the quality of my work and you know and the speed at which I can get things done. Right. Yeah. I mean, how many times in any shop, really? I mean, I, I know we've talked about this a million times and people will talk about it a million more. How many times when yeah. you get done with the project, do you kind of like reevaluate setups and stuff like that? And where would this work a little bit better? So this is a great opportunity because you have that that clean floor plan, basically, to just really just you could spend hours. Are you spending hours doing this? Like you know, hours, <laughs> Matt. I, little, I haven't stopped thinking about it. <laughs> little lead figurines. Now, this guy, I know he's a magician. <laughs> I'm going to have him over here. He'll be the spray gun. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, actually, it's one of those things that I fall asleep at night while I'm thinking about it, you know, because it's when nothing else is going on, I shut everything else off. My brain defaults to whatever the biggest issue is in my life at the time. And I think about, you know, the finishing room and what I want to do with it and, you know, try and the bottom line is I just want to get the walls up and slowly build it up and let necessity drive what I want to do. Um, there you go. You know, so if, if I commit to a plan too early, um, you know, it, it, I may wind up making a decision that I regret and then I've got to rework something. At least this way, I'll just, you know, as I confront these things, I'll, uh, I'll come up with ideas. The weirdest thing about this room, though, is because it is outside, two of the walls, or at least two and a half of the walls, are going to be stuccoed exterior walls because that's okay. what's out there now. The new framing that's being put up, that I have to decide what I want to use for the interior material, whether I'm just going to drywall it or whatever. But when it's all said and done, it's going to look kind of funny, you know, because right. do a couple of the walls are brown painted stucco <laughs> you know, on the inside of this room. So... That that should be kind of interesting. I, yeah, suddenly I had like an image of like the overspray. All the overspray is just all over some <laughs> sort of bad graffiti going on. You know, like Mark was here. Oh, yeah. that was here. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a good reason for having a nice, powerful exhaust fan, even though it doesn't necessarily need to be like a tube axial uh, explosion-proof fan. It still needs to be powerful enough to evacuate the fumes and and everything like that. Because even you know what can't can't stress it enough. Even water-based has dangerous fumes. You can't just, like, give yourself a bath in this stuff and expect not to, to, to grow another arm. You know, you, it's definitely bad for you to breathe this stuff in any way, shape, or form, water-based or otherwise. Right, absolutely. I mean, it, it is one of those that has the chemicals in there for the staining. It's just that the water is what's carrying it. So yeah, exactly. You're still, you know, one thing that got me a while ago few episodes back i don't know if anybody else remember this one so we were talking did you ever have an experience with that was it the erlex hvlp system you were you had mentioned something about taking a yeah. look at it mm-hmm. i think I, I think we brought it up a couple episodes ago in fact 
Okay. Wow, I was sleeping through that one. So, oh. well, you know what, Matt? If you go back and listen to episode, no. um, in fact, I think I got a lot of emails that I I was kind of trying to figure out why do people know about this because I forgot that I had said it in the show and they were all coming from uh, from Wood Talk Online actually, which is kind of neat. So, wow, yeah, so people know, really listen to us. That's scary. Believe it or not, believe it or not, a couple people do. Um, what what where were you going with that? I was just curious, well, since I wasn't paying attention, what your experience was with it. <laughs> well, once again, I will repeat for Matt. Um, <laughs> it actually is going very well. I haven't sprayed much more than a few water-based finishes. I sprayed some traditional solvent-based lacquer, and I also sprayed a few different dyes in there, and also water, because I, I just spray water when I want to test out the fan pattern and stuff like that. And uh, like I said last time, I'm still very, very uh, happy with it. And I'm, I'm sort of filming a little bit as I go. Ultimately, I think what we want to do is put a presentation out there that shows multiple people uh, either, you know, coming to an agreement on the quality of this product. Um, and so far, I've got to say, I was really impressed with it. Um, very, very happy with the results I was getting right off the gun. Uh, the water base was coming out nice and atomizing just fine. I've got I've gotten the water base to atomize and look good on multiple tips, you know, so you can vary your your size of your tip uh, depending mm-hmm. on the viscosity of the finish. And um, I, I couldn't be happier with the results. So very positive uh, initial reaction to it. Excellent, sweet. All right. Yeah. So well, no, go ahead. I recently had an experience. This, you know, kind of got me thinking with the the whole fan for the uh, uh, the finishing room and everything else, and mm-hmm. and the importance of air quality. I recently had an experience where I have this kind of smaller dust collection system in my house. Okay. It's like you know, very very small, and and so therefore I try to do as much as I can with it. And I, the, the the blast gates that I have, I don't know who else out there has any of these really bad plastic blast gates. And right there, <laughs> somebody said plastic. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> Mm. Well, I was thinking cheap. They're a buck ninety nine a piece, and it worked out. <laughs> I just wanted to get the job done. That's what I was thinking. Exactly. You know, it made sense at the time. And uh, so, anyways, I had bought these. And one problem I ran into with these plastic blast gates is the fact that they clog up horribly. Like as the door is supposed to be closing, any sawdust that's in there kind of accumulates at the bottom, and it'll close. But if you actually listen to it, you can hear that there's still air escaping because. The, the dust is stopping the track from closing completely. So this has been, I've been ripping my hair out because it seems like every time I use my table saw, I'll close that gate, go over to my joiner, and then I notice that slowly over time the suction gets worse and worse, and I end up hmm. having to take apart the system, smack these things with a hammer, literally smack the bottom of the hammer trying to loosen up that sawdust, and then eventually they'll close all the way. I get two or three good uses out of it, happens again. <laughs> okay. So I started thinking there's got to be better, something better, you know, something more than $1.99, but not $100 a piece <laughs> yeah. that work for it. And I found over at, at Lee Valley, so far, I think they're the only ones that have these particular ones that I can find. But they're self-cleaning blast gates, and they're a little bit more expensive than the uh, $1.99. They're, they're, they're definitely up there. But these things have, so far have worked great. I, I had a chance to actually hook them up to my system, and I have been so ecstatic with it because essentially what it is is – you have a regular blast gate, but when you close it, the blast gate goes all the way through. So it kind of looks like you have like a cookie cutter shape on the back side, huh. and um, it, it, it stops the, the dust from accumulating in those tracks. And 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 that's you know, for anybody that's ever run into that problem where you can't get the the track completely closed because of this blast gate. I mean, it's my my uh, dust system has actually improved as much as it can uh, because of this very fact. I'm not ripping my hair out. Um, 
the one thing I do have to be careful of is where I place these things because I was used to the other ones not being like this thing popping out the back end. Right. But you know, it's it's easy to go. Now I have a place to hang my you know my my uh, clamps when I'm working on something. I just got to get them out of the way when I go to open them again. Oh, but that's pretty <laughs> but cool they, though. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're really neat. You know, they're all metal, which is another thing. I mean, obviously, all metal versus all plastic. That alone, right there, should say they're going to work a lot better. And they they work really great. So if anybody's you know interested in checking them out, Lee Valley has them. They're self cleaning blast gates, and they are a giant improvement over the crappy plastic ones that I picked up at the big box store. <laughs> nice. Do, do you know if they make them in six uh, six inch size as well? Yep. Oh, yeah. Cool. They have like uh, all the range, like two inch, four inch, five inch, six inch. Um, yeah, they're they're just they're really really great. So I, oh, nice. I definitely. Yeah, definitely highly recommend it if you've ever had that thing where you're beating the crap out of your blast gates because the damn things won't close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I have um, – mine are actually uh, plastic as well, but they're the ones that come with uh, with the clear view, and they're, they haven't held up all that well over time. So that's the one thing I, I also regret. They're probably a little bit nicer than the cheapest plastic stuff that you can get, um, but I was a little disappointed in how – I guess I have a lot of weight on them as well, so maybe I'm being a little unfair, but bottom line is I could use something a little bit more heavy-duty than what I have now. So, no, that's great recommendation, man. I like that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really, really nice. So, yeah, definitely just head over to Lee Valley and take a look at them, and I, I think if you, uh, if you took a look at the, the whole thing, you'd be pretty happy with them. So. Cool, cool. Yeah. All right, well, I wanted to, uh, to have a, a little fun segment here. Um, that Wait, we're not fun enough? <laughs> yeah, once in a while we do like to have fun. Uh, this is, and this is not meant to put down any products that someone likes and uses. This is purely for fun, really. So, right. and we want to encourage everybody to add to our list that we're creating here because we just kind of came up with this idea a few minutes ago. Um, the reason was I actually, uh, before we started the show, I, I realized that I was hungry and I went into the fridge and it just reminded me of this this thing I saw in the uh, in the fridge. There is this little pre-made peanut butter and jelly sandwich and apparently last time my wife was at the store she saw these smuckers pre-made sandwiches and they're, they're literally just a little circular white bread no crust peanut butter and jelly sandwich that you just take out of the freezer pop them in the fridge when they thaw out you got a sandwich that's ready to go well when we got these things i spent about 15 minutes making fun of my wife for buying what i like to call lazy people food <laughs> um i i find and i also like the little carrots that are in the little individual bags Actually chopped up and already cut up and everything. Yeah, exactly. Those I call lazy people food. Um, What else? Well, of course, back to the peanut butter and jelly. Jeez, what's that stuff called? That goober stuff that has peanut butter and jelly in the can together. You know, speaking of the carrots, there's actually ones out there now, and my family is notorious for it too. We got them, the little carrots, but they come with their own little packet of ranch because apparently it's too difficult (laughs) to pour the ranch out of the container. (laughs) Well, and of course, you know, obviously people on the move and kids for lunch and things like that, there are reasons to do this stuff. And and keep in mind, I'm making fun of my own wife here as well. So if you want to get offended by any of this, go ahead. I really don't care. Um, It's just meant to be funny and that's it. But anyway, so speaking of lazy people food, I wondered, are there things that we do in the shop or products that we buy for the shop that are lazy people food products? You know, so is there stuff that we know we can easily make on our own, yet we spend money on this thing to like, you know, so someone else can make it. Um, So we had a a very short list here of just a couple things we came up with in the last few minutes, but this is what I want to know. I want to know what you guys would add to this list because I think it's kind of funny when you think about it. Uh, The the first one, and 
this is a little bit of a stretch because some of these formulations can be a little bit, you know, proprietary, unique, and something you couldn't make on your own. But how about oil varnish blends? So instead oh, of grabbing your own varnish or your own poly, mixing it with some oil, you buy a can and pay, you know, two or three times as much for it. No, I, I would have to get that. Yeah, I, I can't measure. <laughs> <laughs> one third, one third. Darn, I'm off. Oh, Oh, my brain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, and I agree. I think I think part of the reason for me is I think some of these formulations just work better. I think the way they, they're manufactured and the particular resins that they use are uh, each each company sort of uses its own proprietary blend. And the results can be a little more predictable that way. Uh, but it's certainly right. something you can make yourself and get a lot more out of it. Hey, here's one. How about since we're kind of talking about not being able to measure, what about center finding rulers? You know, the ones where they're. <laughs> the center and it's like well i want one inch this way and i want one inch that way how do i how do i do that oh my brain it's hurting you know what and i and i have one and man i use it all the time so i'm guilty Actually, i have one too that's already on my second one so yeah and keep keep in mind with a lot of these two i think we're both guilty of most of them if not all of them so um yeah okay here's how another one sh- go ahead um pre-made calls there's a particular company out there that makes these things called bow clamps and they are uh, calls that are already like cambered almost, so that you can use them on on large pieces of um, of cabinetry and, and casework and things like that. But they sell them all different sizes. But they're really just pre-made calls. Right, right, Dad. Yeah, that's a good one. And I probably, I think I own some of those. I'm trying to think, man. <laughs> they're, they're actually pretty popular. The people who use them love them. They just love them. And I'm like, well, that's that's kind of cool. You know, that's fine. Yep, I've got one that's kind of. Uh, um, and, and and some people I know will be like, well, you got to have this because it really helps out. Have you ever seen the, the the jigs from like I think it's Veritas that has the chamfering jig that you can get for your block plane so that you can, <laughs> you know, because apparently uh, you have a hard time holding the angle the right way to get the <laughs> chamfer rather right. than just simply looking to hold it and go. And again, I'm I'm guilty. I don't actually own it, but it is my wish list if anybody wants to buy it for me. <laughs> nice. Well, that reminds me of the um, what is it? I think i saw it in lee valley as well the magnetic saw guide yes oh yeah <laughs> that holds um, you at 90 wants, degrees yeah if anybody wants a reference for that um i found that it actually works <laughs> i have one of those <laughs> <laughs> it does work though um not as well as they 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 advertise it it's it's a nice one to kind of help you to get started but uh i out of frustration i actually just learned to cut dovetails by hand freehand (laughs) because i got so irritated with that thing (laughs) wow Uh, that's kind of neat i was tempted before i I saw it i thought it was kind of neat um all right here's another one um how about and this i was just looking in uh the rockler uh circular and i saw it in there solid wood edging so, Solid wood edging. Yeah, so we're talking like eighth. I don't know where I could get some of any of that. <laughs> yeah, so like eighth inch or quarter inch um, solid wood edging for edging plywood. That's definitely gotcha. up there. I think, you know, just about anybody who can just really what? You grab a four quarter board and just try and do some thin rips off of it, you can get some solid wood edging pretty easily. But again, it, it has its uses. Some people, you know, probably swear by it, but it's definitely what I would call a lazy people food. <laughs> Oh, wait a minute now that you use solid and get and cut to <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you might need a yeah you can either have it on the uh adjust the fence every time or you can come up with a nice jig or a method uh, for cutting nice thin pieces of uh of uh, solid wood for trimming and stuff like that it you know gotcha. it's one of those things that 
if you have a drum sander, makes this whole thing a whole lot easier because even when you cut it off the table saw, you got a lot of marks in there. It'd be nice if you had a drum sander to pass it through. So there's there's legitimate reasons for buying for buying this stuff instead of making it. Uh, right. Let's see. Let's the, see here. Go, you have another oh, one? Um, you know, one that this this one a lot of people can argue with me on it. I actually again am guilty of having it and I do use it, but I think it is one of those that's kind of funny. Uh, like when you're using your um, your, your your cabinet scrapers uh have you ever like veritas has the one where you can actually bend it and you hold the car the scraper holder oh. so that your fingers don't get hot yes you can use yeah i i have one of those and um i think it takes me longer to chuck up the blade <laughs> <laughs> than it does to use it but i will admit my fingers my thumbs do not get as hot as they used to but of course if i just wrapped them with tape i notice that the heat goes down too <laughs> there you go well you know those things i i've thought about those in the past and i think my main dilemma with that is that i like to change the attack of uh you know the bend that i'm putting in as i do each stroke and it's something that i change frequently depending on what i feel or what i see and if i had to you know i guess it must have like a little screw in there that you turn that that increases that that sort of bowing of the blade um you know if i have to turn that all the time i'll just wind up with sore thumbs from turning a knurled knob rather than uh you know than actually having heated up fingers so um, and yeah. I've, I've not, I mean, yeah, it does get hot, but I've never noticed it to be that much of a problem that <laughs> I have to buy yeah. a little holder, but Hey, some people yeah, do, but the, you can always set it down and walk away and come back. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You could do that. Well, I actually usually have one or two or I'm sorry, two or three, uh, scrapers ready to go. So I could just move from one to the other. And if it gets hot enough, I'm just going to grab, you know, grab a fresh one. Um, all right. My last one that I found in the past has been pre-made winding sticks. Oh, yes. Okay, and yes. anyone who doesn't know what winding sticks are, it's usually um, wood sticks, then they're notorious for being a shop-made you know, tool. And they're both milled to be dead flat. Usually you like to get one that's uh, darker than the other. And then if you space them apart from each other, you can, uh, you can look at sort of sight down at the level of these sticks and tell whether a surface is twisted or, or bowed or bent or something. Um, but it's sort of a classic way of, of checking for flatness. Right. Yep. And let's see. I'm trying to think of one more. Oh, I know. When it comes to like doing roundovers, there are these corner and rounding tools that uh, a lot of people like to use. I personally, myself, I have to kind of laugh because there's like the slick plane and there's uh, like I think Veritas also makes some that kind of look like miniature crowbars. Oh, OK. Um, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I have to kind of laugh at these because, again, I bought them. I fell. <laughs> <laughs> well, half the time, that's how you figure out that these things are lazy people food. A lot of times you look at it and it looks like a, a tool that you really need or is going to make your life easier. And then sometimes, you know, well, sometimes it does, but uh, other times you, you wind up being disappointed in the results and you realize you could have done this uh, with less money and probably gotten better results doing something else. Yep. You know, actually, if I had enough time, I could go over to my drawer full of things I don't use anymore. If I could somehow manage to get it open, man, we could have a field day on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, so I, that's our list. If uh, if you guys have any lazy people shop food stuff that you can recommend that uh, or you've had some experience with that you think would be funny, let us know and we'll play it on the show. Um, yep. And remember, this was all in good fun. And all in like good I said, fun. I, I, I own the majority of the things that I've talked about and I still laugh at the fact that I have them. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? And we've all bought stuff that we've regretted. We've all bought these little gimmicky things that, you know, some of them work. Uh, and you know, there's, there's stuff that we love that other people find useless and think it's a waste of money. So it's, you know, takes a lot of people to make the, the woodworking world go around. 
Um, you know, one last topic I wanted to talk about, changing gears again. Mm-hmm. I was thinking in terms of filming uh, my show and getting my lighting as good as it can possibly be. Um, one thing that just kills the setting and cameras have a hard time resolving is when you have multiple uh, types of light coming into the shop at once. And for me, that was using two different types of bulbs, uh, T8 bulbs in the ceiling, because I was too cheap the first time to buy all of, all of the better <laughs> ones. So I had a batch of the, the the regular ones, just no frills. They were I can't even remember what the... Um, you know what the color temperature was exactly but the ones that i had up there half of them were 6500k uh, uh lights that are, are that's a really good high daylight accurate sort of number um okay. and the result is this very bluish it in fact if you go into my shop it actually where the lights are concentrated the most it looks like there's a skylight instead of there actually being a fluorescent fixture uh, oh nice yeah it's, that's the best way you could describe what that light looks like but inside at first when you first see it it, it kind of looks a little unnatural so um i don't know actually i'd be curious to do a little research what the best lighting is for a shop in terms of finishing but unfortunately my needs are, are for the filming you know and whether right. it, whether it's best for finishing i'm not 100 percent sure maybe i'll i'll look into that for when i do my uh my finishing room uh, but the actual shop itself now. So anyway, the whole point of this was I'm going back and taking all of the uh, lower rating lights out and replacing them with the 6500K, um, which actually I bought the wrong ones. I bought 5000, which were an improvement over the other ones. But 6500 just gives this amazingly bright, powerful light that I think makes a pretty good shop light. So if anyone is looking to uh, to upgrade their lighting in their garage or whatever, Definitely go for T8s. I mean, talk about a major difference in in, in intensity of light. Uh, and, and of course, if you can, I, personally, this may be a matter of taste, but I like the look of the higher number. The, the 6500 was the highest I could find just readily available at Home Depot and Lowe's. Right. You know, and I can see how that could be really important, especially in your finishing room. And you definitely want to spend some time in there because it's almost like – you know, like when, when women complain of this when they go to the store and they're in the, the dressing room and they're yeah. trying on stuff. And it's always like, it looked amazing in the store. And I get home, and I'm like, what's this crap? I can see how when you're finished <laughs> something, you know, it's like, look at this is the most amazing finish I've ever put on this. This is un- unbelievable. And then you get it in the house, and you're like, holy crap, would you spill something on it? <laughs> well, the, the real issue comes in when you're trying to do color matching, and you're looking for color accuracy. How can you tell how red something is if the light above you is actually skewing that color, uh, the, the, the actual color spectrum in a different direction? Um, right. So that that's what I'm I'm not even claiming that the 6500 is best for that. I don't know for sure, and I, I, I should have looked it up before even bringing this up. Um, but again, for for the Wood Whisperer, <clears throat> excuse me, I need the most daylight accurate possible so that I don't have to block the light that's coming in through the windows, and there's no confusing the camera itself. The camera just doesn't do well when there's multiple spectrum of light, but it can correct right. if it's even if it's way off, it can correct for it as long as it's all the same. Right. You see, in, in Mad Space Workshop, when we do our videos, as anybody that's watched it, you know that I've got glares <laughs> going everywhere. And it's yeah. just like, what else? I can't watch the show because I've got glare off his glasses right into the camera. <laughs> and I, I don't correct for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is, this is an effort to avoid having uh, supplemental lighting, which is, I have it, but man, what a pain in the butt. I mean, you can imagine if you're trying to set up every uh, shot, you've got to get the lights in the perfect position at the right intensity. Uh, who has enough time to do that? That's crazy talk. 
right? That's what my wife has a photography business, and that's what I end up doing like half hour before clients show up. I said, How's this? Is this good here? Is that? Oh, wrong one. What's this one? No, not that one. Okay, I'm going upstairs. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine. Anyway, oh, you know what? Sweet. Just since we're on that topic, I should probably mention this too. Um, there is a website out there, and I know a lot of you, a lot of you people who have furniture. One of our dilemmas is photographing it. And to me, sometimes the picture and the images that I get of a piece of furniture are the most valuable thing that I have, even more valuable than the piece itself, because that only goes so far. But the pictures can be emailed, they can be sent to magazines for galleries. So getting really good pictures is essential. And maybe we should do, I don't know, maybe we should do a special on this at some point. Um, But I can just tell you where you might want to go to get some good stuff for relatively cheap. Um, any camera will take amazing pictures as long as it's a relatively modern digital camera will take amazing pictures if you get the lighting done properly and there is a website out there and you should probably check this one out too Matt it's um, Steve Kaser Lighting I believe that's how they pronounce it let me let me find his name is the website but let me just make sure I get all the uh, spelling correct it is we'll put it in the show notes as well it's S dot com, Okay, and he does I just some of the most reasonably priced lighting uh, that I've ever seen anywhere. Um, okay. If you look on the homepage, the bottom right, there is a picture of a chair inside of a little white light box and two lights. You click on that. That is what we just purchased. And the new pictures of my, um, my table that I'm going to be posting on the site... Those actually were taken in this new light box setup. So it comes with a box, two different sizes, 5x5x5, which is huge, and a 3x3x3, plus two light units. And it's such a simple setup, and it's 300 bucks. Now, oh. Yeah, now I know, I mean, obviously throwing $300 at something just to take pictures is a lot of money. But if you look at what these things normally cost, $300 is a steal. So if you're looking to improve the quality of your pictures, this is the way to do it. You get this light box, two simple lights, set it up in the corner of a room uh, somewhere, and it will make a night and day difference in the quality of the images that you're putting out there with your work on it. So highly, highly recommend checking that out. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, I'm, and I don't, you know, I don't, I mess around. You know, I'm not a photographer. I don't even pretend to know a whole lot about it. I know how to set white balance, and that's about it. That's like my claim to fame is white balance. Um, you know, but the I've heard of white balance. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, you, I know. That's what everybody knows about it. Um, it's, it, that was the only thing that I had to set. And then, boom, these pictures just looked, I won't say they look completely professional, but they certainly looked passable you know, for being a, a close to professional look. So uh, worth right. checking out and worth investing in if you make, you know, if you make your money doing this and those pictures are your portfolio, you could save a lot of money by not having to hire someone to do this. Right, yeah, and it beats the hell out of like handing people like, you know, Polaroids. Yeah, this one was taken in the kitchen. Uh, yeah. This one was as I dropped it out of the back of the truck. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. Now, well, here's a question. Your wife does photography. Um, can you just even throw out a ballpark number that if somebody wanted a good dozen photos of a piece of furniture, a a small chair or something like that, what kind of prices do most photographers charge for that stuff? Do you even know? Uh, offhand, I think it's about, see, just to get you in the studio, if, if you bring the stuff into the studio, it's at least a minimum of like 70, 80 bucks. I think she's, yeah, it's somewhere around there. Just the, the, the studio time itself. Okay. Then, um, let's say maybe an hour of shooting. Right. And then, yeah, depending on the, the actual photos, you probably 
probably pretty much coming close just for a, a one-time shot, depending on how many photos. Probably about the same as what you're talking about for this kit itself, about $300, $200, $300. Okay, all right. So not to put your wife out of business, but um, <laughs> you know, for roughly the same price as one session, and I'm sure that varies dramatically depending on, on the photographer. I mean, that actually sounds like reasonable pricing that uh, that your wife has, but um, I can imagine you can easily spend more than $300 photographing one single image or one single right. piece of furniture. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. I'm probably being a little overpriced because I know she'd come down here and go, what the hell did you just do my process, you know, my, my fees for? <laughs> <laughs> but it, you could easily do that, yeah, because with everything else that has to be done and you know, the, the photos themselves, you could, you know, putting together a portfolio, could, it, it could cost you. And sure. When you come in with more of them, obviously, just the, uh, the setup time alone, yeah, it, it, it could definitely cost you quite a bit. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, along the lines of photographing your things and a lot of people, you know, that, that listen to the show try to sell their items. So obviously the photography is important, but another aspect of it is, um, is how you get, you know, how you accept payment for this stuff. And we actually had a question from Dave, uh, concerning what I use for, uh, processing things that I sell on my website. So let me play his question. We'll address it. And hopefully, I mean, it's a little off topic from what we normally talk about, but hopefully some people have an interest in this. Cool. This more directed toward Mark that is Matt. Uh, Mark, I understand that uh, you take commission on pieces and that sort of thing, and you probably accept credit cards. Uh, I was looking into PayPal. I'm not too thrilled about it, but for smaller shops, have you folks experienced anything, or can you point me in a direction? This is Dave. I'm calling from the East St. Louis area. That's the Illinois section of St. Louis. Thanks. All right, so let's not play that twice. Um, <laughs> if you're doing this type of thing, if you have an online presence, I w- we were just discussing this last night, that it's like there are other options out there, but every time I look at some of these other options like Google Checkout and you know more traditional means of accepting credit cards, I always hit a brick wall because there's something that becomes more expensive or it costs me more per transaction or I don't have the access online. Um, I just keep going back to PayPal. Um, mm-hmm. It is full featured in terms of being able to accept cards and uh, people being able to pay without actually registering, which is a big deal. Nobody really wants a PayPal account. Uh, well, not obviously some people do, but if they're just buying a DVD for my site, they don't necessarily want to have to get a PayPal account and they can pay without doing that. Um, the rates, comparatively speaking, are very fair. So I do keep going back to PayPal and that's for anybody selling anything online is probably really the 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 i don't know to me seems like the only logical game in town right now uh, even right. though there are some other options they're just not as popular and if if you're not on Google checkout then you can't buy something on a vendor that has Google checkout you know right yep so yeah definitely something to think about if you're going to be if you're going to be selling stuff online it's it's not a bad idea especially for furniture pieces Right. You know, and with your business, it, it's small enough that with the Wood Whisperer that you can't really, you know, do a traditional bank type thing anyways. I mean, yeah. I know that's a problem that we've run into with, with my wife's business is it's way too small. And let's get serious. Matt's Basement Workshop podcast isn't quite selling the DVDs. <laughs> doesn't have any DVDs to sell. There but you go. still, <laughs> with small businesses, you're running into those problems anyways. And yeah, and, and 
uh, I, I've, I've heard from people that are like, I hate PayPal, but I'm like, yeah, but it's the easiest one to use because of yeah. all those reasons you just recommended. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it myself. And um, I think also I may have missed the direction of his question. He was asking about custom furniture pieces. I never, I mean, I have accepted some payments through PayPal and you give them your email address and they'll be able to send it to you or you can invoice them via email through PayPal mm-hmm. and then they just follow the links and pay it. I do try for furniture because you're dealing on a much more personal level with these people. Uh, I do try to get a check. Um, I find it much easier and I save money. I don't want to have to pay PayPal if it's not necessary. So every time I would say 99% of my transactions as a business person and and, uh, furniture maker um, were done via check as opposed to credit cards. Which is often referred to as, hey, pal, pay me. Yeah. So it's a <laughs> and, <good> system. <laughs> and you know what? People, surprisingly, I mean, they have, I've yet to confront somebody who insisted on paying with a credit card. You know, so it wasn't really a problem. They, they enjoyed the personal interaction and sort of the old-fashioned way of doing business by writing a check. Um, or, or there's an even older-fashioned way, which is cash. But cash. who does that? What's cash? What is, yeah, what is that? Never, I never heard of it. Uh, I did have one guy pay cash once. That was kind of weird. Anyway, I don't know what to do with that. That just makes me very, very nervous. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't like touching money. I got that little germ phobia thing, and, and touching money makes me icky. Oh, man. Just the other <laughs> Last weekend, we went to a monster truck rally. I want to talk about touching cash that's icky. <laughs> oh, God, touching the seats that are icky, man. That's nasty. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> All right. Anywho, uh, we have another question here. Uh, blasting through these e- or, uh, voicemails today. We have a question from Jason who wants to know about through tenants uh, that happen to be died. Oh. Hey guys, Jason Young calling from New Brunswick, Canada. Saw a magazine the other day where that beautiful picture of a set of built-ins in a kind of craftsman style where the uh, drawers had through tenons. Everything was white oak except the drawer faces were lace wood, but the tenons that came through were black. So I don't know if I don't imagine they used ebony, but probably did some kind of dye combination. I just can't figure out how to achieve that look because I think it looks great. Can you guys comment on how you could achieve that in terms of gluing it up and finishing it? I'd really like to give it a shot. Thanks a lot, guys. Keep keep up the good work. Bye. Well, no doubt that's going to be tricky. What he's describing sounds gorgeous. Um, but yeah. it, it would be tricky to accomplish that because you figure you dye it beforehand and you plow it through the mortise, and then once it gets exposed, what's going to happen? It's got glue on it. Right, right. yeah. You know, so that's tricky. Um, you know, in a lot of these cases, you got to be careful because sometimes they're just applied. Mm-hmm. You know, they might not right. be true through tenons, and you're looking at an applied piece. Um, yeah. Gee, I haven't done that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never. So never off here, kind of send does that look about right there. And <laughs> right, well, yeah, you just look for the one or two degree off, you know, application. That's a dead giveaway. Uh, worse, right. worse yet is you know go, going through linens and things. I think I saw that uh, a step stool or a, you know, just a regular stool with the stamped on painted through tenons. Those those were <laughs> just beautiful. Anyway, how did they look? My technique, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as that technique would go, now I've never done it and I've never researched it, so I don't know for sure if there is a traditional, very smart way of doing it. What I would do is I probably would dye the back, you know, the front end of the tenon. You don't need to dye the whole thing, just, you know, from the point of exposure, you know, back maybe a half inch. But a lot of times what they do is it's really like, let's say, a 45 degree chamfer is given to the edge of that tenon so that once it's exposed, you don't really have a whole lot of material. It's just the 45-degree chamfer and the end grain is really what, what sticks out. So 
if you just die the front end of the um, of the tenon, I would probably, I might even pre-finish the tip of it. And then once that's all dry, I would actually use masking tape and tape the whole thing so that it, you know, is protected from the glue. And this way, when you drive it through, also, you want to protect the outside edges of your through uh, mortise. You know, so the outside and where the, the tenon is going to penetrate through, protect it, line the entire uh, area with, you know, maybe blue tape or something. And this way, once you punch through, the, any of the glue is going to sit on top of the tape and you really reduce how much cleanup you're going to have to do. And that's the key. If you have to do a lot of cleanup, no matter what you pre-finish, pre-dye or anything like that, you're going to wind up screwing up the surface. And I think that's probably where his uh, concern comes from. So if you protect it and the glue never actually touches it, you just peel away the, the tape and you're good to go. Yeah, that that's pretty much what I was thinking too. Was yeah, having to pre-finish it ahead of time because, yeah, when when you're pushing it through, that's the last thing you want to do is have any of that glue kind of get gooped up in there, and then let's yeah. see you try to apply the finish. Yeah, so, exactly. And if you just dye it, it can still pick up a lot of the glue. But if you pre-finish it, uh, it'll mm-hmm. be a lot more resistant to uh, to absorbing any of that glue that might seep through. Right. Maybe even you know something as simple as like you know applying a little shellac or some wax or something, just enough to yeah to kind of plug up the co- the pores so that the glue's not going to seep in and, and go from there. You know, and hey, well you, you know if you use a little shellac, then just have a beer and use the alcohol to whip it off, and you'll there be you all go. <laughs> nice. Hey, we had um we had one more voicemail, but I think we're going to save that for next week because we're okay. hitting, you know we're going to try and keep these a little bit shorter than uh, than we have been in the past. And your voice is starting to sound like a evil devil type person right now so <laughs> that means that the skype connection is going to crap out on us any second so we should probably wrap okay. it up <laughs> yep absolutely yeah and you're right it will keep it nice and simple for everybody because you love to hear us especially like when you sound evil it's very entertaining keep going i want a million dollars paypal uh, just write me <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll take a pretty hefty chunk out of that million dollars though so <laughs> watch out <laughs> so yeah definitely you know what if you people want to get a hold of us drop us a line at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can leave us a message over at 623-242-2450 and hopefully i didn't sound too scary when i said that so that you're not like you know quaking when you're leaving your voicemail or whatever <laughs> you get to wait till wait till you you hear it when we publish this it's going to be funny anyway oh, well. <laughs> thanks for listening and thanks for in, enduring matt's uh transition to hell uh, at the end of this episode <laughs> I've been a bad boy today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care, Matt. We'll talk to you next week. See you later. Take care. Hi, Mark. This is Bruce out in San Francisco Bay Area. I sent you an email the other day referencing the uh, fall of the tragic hero. The ones I was listening to today, you were talking about uh, people asked the difference between the 66, Carmack 66 and the PM2000 saw on why the new features are actually less money. If you look at the catalog very carefully, you'll notice that on the, on the 66, there's a little American flag. It does not appear on the other Carmack tools, and that's because the, part, the 66 is still made in the United States and the others are made offshore. That's why there's a price differential. It's the same as in the general and general international. You notice on the general tools in the catalog, they have the Canadian flag on the, on the flyer, and the ones made overseas do not. Uh, that's why they're cheaper. Also, on one of the tapes I was listening to this morning, you're talking about 
uh, shop vacs and clogging the filters. Uh, it's true that if you use the bag, it works much better. I have both a fine as well as a Festool, and I use the bag in both of those, and I reuse the bags. I unfold the end, empty them, and put it back together with Gorilla Tape. It works really great. You use them over and over again that way. But on the shop vac where you don't have the bag, I take a leg out of my wife's discarded pantyhose and pull it up over the filter. That way you don't have to pry all the junk out between the pleats and the filter. You just pull that off and put a new one on, and it's just as good, ready to go. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, I enjoy your stuff. Um, I wanted to turn you on. If it, I didn't look at your links and stuff, if you have this, but Eagle Lake Woodworking. It's a young guy, younger guy, and he does some fantastic stuff, and he made a motorized uh, router lift and uh, a beautiful uh, keepsake box. Um, does some great stuff with routering. Anyway, uh, to keep up the good work and uh, check this Hey, Matt and Mark. I'm going to try this again because I know I babbled in that last um, voicemail I left you. So uh, this is Mike Rodriguez from Colorado, MROD here in the big state. And um, I just wanted to chime in on your topic from Episode 30 for Can Woodworking Clubs Survive? I got involved uh, briefly with the woodworking club here locally uh, just to kind of help them out to see if I can work with them on their website or what have you. And um, I went to a few meetings and definitely – saw the representation there um, being more of the senior type of folks that have been involved in the, the process that may have a little more time, you know, retirees that have more time to devote to the club than, than folks that are in my age group, which is in the 30s or, or younger people. But I do um, see that the uh, group tries to bridge, and that's with the school that we have locally, the Red Rocks Community College uh, woodworking um, curriculum, which is excellent. And uh, the folks I've seen in, in the classes there are your folks going to the actual community college there that want to take the woodworking courses or people like myself in my 30s that want to just just got into woodworking so I'm taking woodworking 101 and um, they have an annual show here locally that um, not like you do in your own states that they um, team up with the school and then the school will have um, the you know talented folks go over and display their um, their woodworking um, work. So I think that there's still this this, um, this um, desire for both the young and the older folks to, um, you know, bring up um, new talent in the local area. But I definitely think um, there's a lot that can be done to make it more marketable and exciting for just any individual that's, um, you know, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that just doesn't have the time to attend these meetings every week. But um, would like to, um, you know, make sure they're part of the community. Um, there's a big state here, a couple million people, and I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands of woodworkers that just aren't in the loop. So uh, I appreciate what you guys are doing to keep it online, and that's uh, obviously a, a great way to reach people. Anyway, thanks, and keep it up. The good work. Peace.